Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. And today we continue our Christmas series, The Word Became Flesh. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Word Became Flesh, Part 2. This is today my second message on John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. The Word became flesh. It's the heart of the Christian message. John 1, 14 to 18 is written to help us see that never has the human race seen more grandeur or splendor than when the Word of God was born in human flesh. Well, are you convinced? Do you think you've seen something that's more impressive than that? You know, when I began this series, I began by recounting an experience I had as a young man. I'd parked my car in a secluded location on a cloudless summer night, gazed into the glory of the night sky and summoned God, reveal yourself, show me who you are, I said. Of course, I was ignoring the glory of the created world. That is, I was ignoring the splendor of the work of his fingers, paying no attention to staggering glory. But says John, there is greater glory and splendor than creation. It happened on the night when Mary gave birth to baby Jesus. I'm reading John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You know, at the outset, it needs to be said that as one reads through the Gospel of John, it quickly becomes apparent that, that not everyone who saw Jesus was awestruck or, as we like to say, gobsmacked, filled with astonishment, saying, I have just seen the most magnificent splendor that the human race has ever seen. Instead, as Isaiah said, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Indeed, quite right. Merely from a physical perspective, there was nothing in Jesus' external appearance that would give you a sense of majesty. I mean, he didn't have a halo. There wasn't a glow over his head. You could have passed him on the street and not seen him. Anything that would startle you or make you pay attention, I mean, that wasn't who he was. And that's not what John has in mind when he said, we have seen his glory. Well, let's let John describe it himself. You know, first of all, in verse 14, John says that when we saw his glory, a glory of the only Son from the Father, and then he adds the words, full of grace and truth. You know, John seems to be alluding to a very important Old Testament passage. The passage comes from Exodus chapter 33 and 34. You know, in that wider extended passage, Moses, well, in Exodus 33 verse 18, says to God, show me your glory. And then if you remember the passage, God put his hand over Moses' face, skewering his vision, and then God passed by it. I'm not sure exactly if I understand or comprehend this rightly, but God allowed Moses to see God's glory as it had passed by. In effect, Moses caught the tail end of God's glory, and then God proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And then when we fast forward to the next chapter, which is chapter 34, verses 5 and 6 says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now here, at this point in the narrative, it's a narrative rich with the overwhelming greatness of God. It's here that God pronounces two of his attributes. He is abounding or full of these things. The first is steadfast love, and that's a word that's taken from the Hebrew word hesed. You know, that word is sometimes translated as loving kindness, sometimes just mercy, and it always bears with it the idea of God's love expressed in his covenant that he has made with his people. God says, I'm full of that kind of love that flows from my covenant. My love's on display as I commit myself to pouring out mercy on Israel. In spite of their sins, I continue to showcase my kindness to them. And the second attribute that God is full of is the attribute of faithfulness taken from the Hebrew word met. Sometimes translated as faithfulness and other times as simply truth. So the idea of faithfulness is that God is constant. He never ceases to act consistently. Whatever he promises, he does. When he speaks truth, his actions are always consistent with the truth that he has spoken. So see the context. In Exodus 32, Israel sins in making a golden calf idol, and God responds by destroying a number of them, but then he restrains his hand and he allows the community to live. And with that, Moses intercedes for the people and he pleads that God would not destroy them all. And God does have mercy. And with that, we have Moses' audacious request, show me your glory. And then, of course, God announces two of his attributes. He is full of those commodities. He's full of mercy and he's full of faithfulness or truth so that his mercy never ceases. God is overflowing with these two attributes. Now, this pairing, a God full of steadfast love and faithfulness is found over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God is full of love and truth. And when we come to the Gospel of John, John's description of the coming of Jesus into the world, he says, the Word of God became flesh, and then John says, I'm reading John 1:14, we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. So he's using the exact same words that come from Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Jesus, the one found in human flesh, is full of the very attributes that are in the Father. So John says, when I followed Jesus, I saw the very same glory that Moses saw when he was on the mountain. And so says John, we have seen his glory. Moses had nothing on us. And just so we don't miss it, John adds, glory of the only son from the father. Now, a great many earlier translations read, the glory of the only begotten son from the father. And that's a very interesting translation, the idea that Jesus is begotten of the Father. So let me try to explain the significance here. You know, a great many Christians are confused by the wording of son. You know, if you ever encounter a Jehovah's Witness at your door, they're, they're commonly saying, you know, I don't believe Jesus is God. I believe he's the Son of God. But here in this passage, the Greek word is monogenesis, and the older translations translated that as the begotten of the Father. So when you make something, 
You make something that's different from yourself. But when you beget someone, your son, your son is of the same substance as yourself. So that means that your son, if you have one, has a genetic code that's taken from his mother and his father. He's, he's human. He's a sinner. He's finite. He has a point of beginning, and he will have a point of death. In this, he is begotten. He shares in the same substance as his parents. And therefore, if the father has a son, the son, if he's begotten, shares fully in the substance of the father. That is, he is of one essence with the father. So if the essence of the father is such that he's infinite, then the begotten one of the father must also be infinite. You understand what I'm saying? See, if he were not infinite, he would not be begotten. Instead, he would be made. So to be begotten of the father is to share in his essence since God is infinite, eternal, ceaselessly existing, with no point of beginning and no point of ending, then if the Son is begotten, he shares fully in that essence. Otherwise, he would not be the begotten of the Father. I hope you're getting this. You see, I have a son, and just like his dad, my son is fully human. God the Father has a son. And just like his father, the son is fully God. If he were not, he would not be the son. So in other words, what makes a son a son is that he shares in the father's essence. Now, most modern translations don't actually translate that Greek word monogenesis as begotten. You know, the English Standard Version translates it as the only son. And the NIV translates it as the one and only son. See, that would mean that the father has but one son. And, and that's interesting also because according to the First Testament, the angels are sometimes called the sons of God. And in the New Testament, believers in Jesus are also sometimes called sons of God. I mean, the idea when it's stated that way is that God has a relationship to some of his creatures in which he acts as a father would towards them. He protects them. He loves them. He provides for them. You get the idea. But all of this is an analogy, and it's not what John meant in John 1.14. When Jesus is called the Son of God, that title is unique to him. No one else has it. It's not a picture simply of a fatherly relationship. Rather, it's a picture of Jesus standing. He is the only son. He has an identity that's shared by no other. So whether the words translated as only begotten or simply only son, one thing remains clear. All that is true of the father is true of the son. And if the father is full of love and faithfulness, so is the son. That's the point. Looking back on 2017, remember incredible words of encouragement received from so many. Mike, who wrote, I just heard a message that was truly convicting. Thank you, Dr. Newfeld, for having the guts to preach the truth. Andy said, I can't believe I haven't listened before. Thank you for not being afraid to tell it as it says. I now listen every day. And Liz, I just love the teaching. Dr. Newfeld brings life to my day through the scriptures. Comments like these and many more are evidence God is at work and we couldn't be more grateful. We also realize these comments are only possible as friends across Canada pray and financially support this ministry. 
December is a critical time financially as we move into a new year. Our goal for this month is $400,000, and we're praying that you'll play a part in reaching that goal. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. You know, it's clear to me that however we understand the term monogenesis, John is making clear the full equality of the Father and the Son. See, while it is true that throughout the book of John, John frequently records Jesus submitting to his Father. And so, for instance, in John 5.19, John records Jesus as saying, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And yet, just a few lines later in that very same passage, verse 23, John records Jesus as saying that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. So, in other words, even while the Son submits to the Father, yet the Son is afforded equal honor as is afforded the Father. And therefore, all that is true of the glory of the Father, that is, his eternal nature and divine attributes, well, that's also true of the Son. If the Father is full of grace and truth, then so also is the Son. And then just to reinforce that matter further, getting back to our text in chapter 1, John the Apostle then adds the words of John the Baptist. He says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And, you know, later in John 8, 58, Jesus will say, Before Abraham was I am. So that title, I am, well, that's a name for God. And Jesus, without even the slightest hesitation, calls himself by the very name of the one true God. So let's remember, in the middle of all these statements about the identity of the babe in the manger, the word became flesh that John has been wanting us to to concentrate on this one statement. He is full of grace and truth. And so with this emphasis, verse 16 says of Jesus, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, that's a very difficult text to translate. The original Greek quite literally reads, out of his fullness, we have all received grace instead of grace, or grace as opposed to grace. See, that's a very difficult expression for what could John possibly mean by saying that? And I think the answer is found in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, John's comparing two things. He's comparing the law given by Moses with the reality of the body of Jesus. Now look, there is grace in the law, and that's why after sparing the Israelites after the incident of the golden calf, God can speak of himself as full of grace and truth. That is, he is faithful to the truth of the Ten Commandments, even while he never ceases to be faithful to his mercy, his loving kindness. He does provide for means in which the sinner can find mercy even while they only deserve damnation. And so the Old Testament law does provide for mercy. There are gracious actions that that do flow from the encounter with God at Mount Sinai. And furthermore, the, the Ten Commandments are a grace because they bring decency and civility into human lives. 
You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I mean, all of these things teach us to know the difference between right and wrong. They're foundational to living a decent life. Any civilization that abandons this will soon find that human life becomes cheap and and hardly worth living. I mean, this is grace. But, says John, against that grace, Jesus has given a grace of a different kind. So, let me explain how. I think it's true in two very significant ways. The first is that the law really doesn't provide any provision for forgiveness. You know, Hebrews 10.4 reminds us that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sins. See, all the law was able to do was to remind one of sins. And yeah, the sacrificial system did provide forgiveness in, in two matters. I mean, the first dealt with matters of ritual purity, and the second dealt with matters that could be made right. So, for instance, if you stole something, you had to pay it back and add a third for the damage done, and then sacrifice at the temple, and then forgiveness would be offered. But sins against God are what are called high-handed sins, deliberate sins. Well, nothing in the temple could atone for that. Rather, the temple reminded one of the seriousness of those sins. In its place, worshipers were called upon to appeal to God for mercy, believing that in some fashion, God might find a vehicle to grant forgiveness to the sinner. And so up against that, the mercy and forgiveness found in the cross of Jesus, well, that's infinitely superior to that which was offered by Moses. The grace offered up in Christ is complete and absolute. Mercy is found for the worst of sins. Anyone seeking Jesus finds in him all that is needed for reconciliation with God. You know, a second way in which the grace of Jesus is superior to that of Moses is that the law comes to condemn sin, but it does not come with the power to transform lives. Sacrifices are offered, God is appealed to for mercy, but the heart of the worshiper remains untouched. But the grace of Christ comes with the power to transform the heart. Christ's grace sets the captives free. His grace releases us from the chains of slavish desires to the flesh. His grace brings something new into our lives. You know what happens to a couple who are on the verge of a divorce and then they find Jesus? Well, they learn to love. They learn to forgive. They, they learn to treat each other with tenderness. You know what happens to a man who steals at work? He's a miser. He cares only for himself, and then he meets Jesus. Well, he learns to give his life for others just like Jesus did. See, that's the miracle of conversion. The Word of God that became flesh becomes enfleshed in us. We begin to act like Christ. You know, in my last sermon, I told of a man in Romania who, who had actually come to love his torturers. You know, I fear the drama of that story might keep us from from realizing the common examples of, of that very thing every single day. I mean, think of the man who's unjustly fired at work and, and loves even the people who chased him from his job. Think of the woman whose husband has left her for another woman, you know, a, a younger model. Well, she knows that reconciliation may be impossible, and yet she refuses to meet infidelity with hatred. And that's grace of the most powerful variety. That's incarnational living. And we've said that God's word has become flesh. And finally, that it becomes flesh in us through the grace of changed lives. Let me now take us to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
know, that passage is another difficult passage to translate, and literally it reads, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. What does that mean? Well, first of all, would you notice that John again calls Jesus God? Five times now, in the first 18 verses of this book, John calls Jesus God. If you can't see that, you're going to miss the entire story of Jesus. And secondly, John tells us that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father, not just standing beside the Father. I know it's a strange phrase, but it's intended to give us an image. Imagine a father holding his son to his breast. That's different than speaking to him or just spending time together. That's a moment of intimacy. God wants us to know that Jesus doesn't just tell us about God because he has heard God or even because he's seen God. He tells us about God because he and the Father have had a relationship of love and intimacy from eternity past. Jesus has revealed the one whom he intimately knows. And that is, when Jesus speaks to us about the Father, he speaks about the one he has intimately known for all of eternity. He's not a prophet who speaks the word of God. He is the word of God, who has known everything that there is to know about the Father and who has shared love with the Father from eternity. That's significant because it tells us that everything about the Christian faith is about intimacy with God. Yeah, of course, there are Christian doctrines. Truth matters to us. Yes, of course, the Christian faith calls us to an ethical standard, a standard in which we submit our lives into the hands of Christ and we are obedient to him for a lifetime. And as important as these things are, one thing stands at the center. The word who is always intimate with the Father and whose attributes are the very essence of the Father's attributes, this word became incarnate among us. And the one who knew intimacy from eternity past comes to us, like one of us, and offers us the most precious of all gifts. He offers us the gift of intimacy with himself. We can know him. And that's the greatest grace that's ever been offered. It's sins forgiven and invited into fellowship with the one who is the one true God. That is the heart of the Christian faith. Thanks, John, for your message today. I just want to offer a real basic question today, but I think an important one. Why is it so important that Jesus became flesh? You know, there are so many ways to answer that question, but I'd like to put it back down to that one thing. Uh, Christian faith is about intimacy with God, and God came to us so that we might be intimate with him. I mean, I can can, uh, relate to God as the great transcendent being, um, who, who is beyond my understanding, and that all is true. I might be able to bow before him and worship, and yet this, this great eternal God has invited me into intimacy with him. And that is what Christmas is all about. It's put us in a personal relationship with Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for the continuation of our series, The Word Became Flesh, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Well, we're drawing close to the last call to join us on board the Freedom of the Seas this February 3rd to the 11th for our 60th anniversary Celebration Caribbean Cruise. 
Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway from Laugh Again, Isaac Dagno from Indout, and special friends and musical guests Shane and Angela Weeb for a nine-day adventure taking in all the wonderful sights and sounds of the Caribbean while enjoying exceptional opportunities for worship, fellowship, laughter, and digging deep into God's Word. Don't miss out. Call today. We'd love to see you there. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page online at backtothebible.ca. And please remember that this trip or any of our Back to the Bible Canada vacation events are paid for solely by the participants and the ministry gifts from friends across Canada are never used for this purpose.